Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Did the Brookings Bunny just tweet a picture of himself with Adam Schiff? I believe he did, yeah. Um, Adam Schiff was, as you know, having hosted an event with him today. He was in the building. And shortly after he left, the Brookings Bunny tweeted a picture of himself with Adam Schiff, uh, saying it was excellent of, of Schiff to stop by. Did, did Adam Schiff's security detail not stop this bunny from accosting him? Well, here's the thing. is That, that sounds I, dangerous. I, I think if you were to look at Adam Schiff's t- Instagram feed, you might find an exceedingly similar picture of him and his son from Halloween uh, in which his son is dressed up in a suit that looks remarkably like the Brookings Bunny. I was going to say, the Brookings Bunny looks like it might have had like a little bit of an accident or something. Like it's a yeah. little bit off. So I think, <laughs> but he likes bunnies. That's I, the thing. I think the, Brookings, I think the point is the Brookings Bunny may have photobombed Adam <laughs> Schiff or even just hijacked his Twitter feed. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure he and Strobe Talbot are I both really say, happy about that. I continue to dislike the Brookings Bunny. It creeps me out. Could I just say, you all give me the creeps? <laughs> you can say that. You can. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the what's the Russian word for edition edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal. It's probably like edition ski. It's izdanya. Izdanya? Izdanya is the edition. I think so. That's not. It's like edition, not uh, addition. No, it's it's edition. Izdanya. 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 I feel like there should be some place that I can report the two of you for knowing what the word is. Well, I did just look it up on Google Translate. Sources (laughs) familiar with the matter said Shane Harris knows the Russian word for edition. Edition. (laughs) (laughs) These days that passes for news. As it should. Oh, Lord. Uh, we're here in the Jungle Studio. We're here with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. And our special guest today, Jonathan Rausch. Jonathan, you may have been the special guest on this show more than any other person. How does that make you feel? More than, maybe more than everyone else combined. Are you reconsidering life choices? <laughs> it makes me feel less than special, especially <laughs> since I only get tapped when someone else doesn't show up. No. No, you're our specialist. Yes, <laughs> no, you used are. to come on when we didn't even have so. You were actually our first special guest ever, like when it was uh, actually before Susan was on the podcast. It's true. Yeah, it is true. Yeah. Um, and think, now he's did, here to enlighten us all. Yeah. Wrap so, up this enlighten I'm us. here because you couldn't get the Brookings bunny. You're I will to, never get right, the Brookings get bunny. Get the bunny costume. Jonathan's going to wear it while you record. <laughs> Oh boy! This week on the podcast, it is all Russia all the time. It's the Ruskia is Dania. Yes, da comrade. 
<laughs> FBI Director James Comey makes it official. There is an investigation into Trump's links to Russia and other stuff, which we're going to talk about. No shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad he settled that. Woo! Now I can go home. Uh, the top Democrat in the House investigating the Russian hacks makes a plea for civility and, and some other stuff. And hangs out with the Brookings Bunny. And hangs out with the Brookings Bunny. And is Donald Trump his own worst enemy or his best defender when it comes to this controversy? Uh, plus some cool object lessons. Um, let's start with the big news of the week. FBI Director James Comey, surprising absolutely no one, told the House Intelligence Committee on Monday, yes, there is a counterintelligence investigation into, as part of the Russian interference in the election, uh, into whether or not there were any links between the people who did set interference and associates of Donald Trump or his campaign. Um, obviously, this had been widely reported. By a lot of news organizations up until now, Comey was expected that he was going to have to say something about this. Um, I don't know about you guys, but still watching that, I did. It it still was a moment to actually watch the FBI director not only confirm an ongoing investigation, but one that is centered on the White House and people in the orbit of the President of the United States. Um, let me just start with one question. I mean, what's changed now that that's out in the open? How does this? Or does it does it matter that he said? I mean, it obviously matters that he said it, but has this fundamentally changed the the trajectory of this story at all? Right. So I think that it can be um, uh, for people who sort of focus on this issue all the time. Um, we can forget that this might be the first time the American people, like a large amounts of the American right. people, had really heard. I mean, you know, uh, Schiff in his opening statement went through that really full accounting of possible coincidences and what had occurred. So it might change things in terms of sort of the legitimacy, the political landscape. Obviously, confirming there's an investigation is going to change the way we talk about it. For me, though, I think sort of the most significant thing is, you know, the day before Ben had written an article about um, sort of how to how to read Comey's testimony, right? And, and had sort of argued that uh, the quieter Comey was, the worse news it was for Trump. Um, with that in mind, looking at the testimony, I thought it was kind of bad news for Trump. And so it changes things in the sense that I do think it sort of it validates that this is uh, a really serious thing. It's not going anywhere and that we're going to have to be patient, but there could be, I mean, really unbelievably significant consequences at the end. I think uh, it's actually a very big deal. And I think it's, a first of all, uh, want to amplify something that Susan said. Um, you know, having a slew of news stories saying Russia this, Russia that, there may be connections, the FBI may be looking at it, sources close to somebody who might know something whose grandmother talked to the FBI in, in last July. That grandmother has proven very reliable. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing. Uh, having the FBI director on national television say, we are investigating A, Russian hacking, B, connections between the Trump campaign, individuals associated with the Trump campaign, and the Russian intelligence apparatus. And three, whether there are, was collusion or collaboration between the Trump campaign and the Russian intelligence apparatus, that is a very substantial moment. And I'm actually surprised that Comey said it. I mean, you said surprising to no one. Uh, actually, one person. What did you expect he would say? Though? I really expected him to beat around that particular bush, maybe huh. to acknowledge that there were active investigations that he didn't want to uh, 
But he didn't just say that there was an active investigation. He spelled out that it was a, a, a foreign counterintelligence investigation that had criminal elements. He specified three discrete areas of substantive interest. Um, and he specifically named, identified the cabal, I use that in its most neutral sense, <laughs> around uh, uh, the- it's a horribly uh, neutral word. Around Donald Trump as, uh, you know, the subject matter of the investig- of, of one component or two components of that investigation. That is a very big decision by the Justice Department to let him do that. Uh, and it is a big decision by the FBI to do it. And, uh, and I think having a moment where the camera points at the FBI director and the F with, you know, the, all the trappings of a congressional hearing going on and the FBI director says those things is a very big deal. What are the implications and why did he do it? I, I'm, as with all things Jim Comey, I think the search for subtext is a fool's errand. This is a person largely without subtext. Uh, he does things for exactly the reason he says he does them. And in this case, he told everybody exactly why he was doing it, which is that while they usually don't confirm investigations while they're ongoing, there's sometimes when the public interest is so overwhelming that it's important to talk about these things and say everything that you can. And in this case, he and the Justice Department made the decision that this was what they could say. And I think that that's – there's no subtext to that. That's the whole story. Um, and What's the subject to Jeff Sessions is allowing him to do it. Well, Jeff Sessions is recused. Mm -hmm. So the acting attorney general for this purpose is Dana Buente, who is a respected uh, U.S. attorney uh, and acting deputy attorney general in general. But I, I actually doubt the answer would have been different had Rod Rosenstein, who's also a respected, you know, holdover U.S. attorney who's about, you know, eventually will be confirmed as deputy attorney general, would have been confirmed. I think this is clearly an institutional judgment, both of the FBI and of the Justice Department, that this is what they're prepared to say. So I think that, one, we should create a line of subtextless, like, greeting cards, Jim Comey greeting cards that just say exactly what they mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? It's like, you know... <laughs> I'm I'm feel obligated to acknowledge the day of your right. birth each year. I, I I like you enough to send a card. <laughs> you were worth thirty two cents of my time. Yeah, I my couldn't time think of money. a gift, so I sent this card. Right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> sort of Brick Comey branded. Exactly. Well, we can monetize this. There's a Walmart. lot. There's a lot. That here. would be wonderful. Um. So I have sort of a strange question here, um, and that's that, that obviously the hearing came sort of at the end of uh, basically two weeks of, the, of President Trump's sort of increasingly outlandish claims about having been wiretapped by Obama and then no GCHQ did it on his behalf. Um, one of the elements of the hearing was uh, both Director Comey and Admiral Rogers pretty resoundingly saying no, right? Well, although, that didn't although I think in – Actually, incredibly gently. I mean, that this this was an area where, given the press coverage, I was all primed for Comey to be much more aggressive than he was, and I thought he he corrected the president with uh, 
with much more deference than I expected him to show. And got no love in return, which we'll talk about in a minute. So I agree. So this is my this is my question, uh, sort of about other people's oppressions. Uh because there is now confirmed an, an ongoing investigation that stretched back to July of President Trump's associates uh, and right a, a general inquiry into Russian counterintelligence, you know, we're now sort of seeing people take a victory lap on the wiretapping claim, which I think we all agreed was sort of outlandish from the start. That said, does the, does the confirmation of the hearing in any way sort of vindicate Trump's paranoia in the sense that if he, if his close associates were, uh, uh, were the targets of investigations, if he was in contact with people, we've seen sort of the general confusion about the difference between incidental collection and targeted collection, all these other things. The one thing that I couldn't quite parse was, uh, were Comey and Roger's statements such that we can now affirmatively say no one has ever gotten Donald Trump's phone calls, period? Or should we be preparing ourselves for the possibility that, oh, he will have been incidentally collected in the course of this investigation, right? Like, how should we – is that just a silly thing to think? No, I think and I think you're on to something, which is what I think was happening last week when Sean Spicer tried out this idea that by wiretapping – uh, with two Ps, what the president really meant was broad surveillance. And by tapping my wires, what he really meant was there's a broad investigation going on, according to the press, and lots of people may have been surveilled. I mean, he widened the aperture of that lens dramatically. And this is where I think that if it does turn out that, in other words, this is why whatever was said by Comey and Rogers in that hearing, which was very narrow, I mean, A, it shouldn't be read as, you know, they're saying there was no surveillance of any kind, but Trump sort of preemptively laid the groundwork so that if it does turn out that there was surveillance of Paul Manafort or Roger Stone or Carter Page or whomever, he can say, see, no, that's what I meant. I was right. I, I mean, was right. There was something on me. Uh, look, I, I don't think that would be a reasonable claim on his part. It wouldn't be reasonable, um, but he'll make it. I don't I mean he already is. I don't believe and I'd have to go back to the transcript of yesterday's hearing. I don't believe they were ever asked the question, was anybody associated with the Donald Trump organization or campaign right. uh subject to incidental collection of content metadata or any other form of surveillance by any investigative entity of the United States within X number of months of the election. And you would have to ask that question at that aperture in order to – and by the way, the answer to that question is almost certainly, gee, I don't know. Um, but uh, – You'd have to ask the question at that level of aperture in order to exclude the possibility that someday we may learn that somebody associated the camp with the campaign was the subject or, you know, had communications that were intercepted in some form. The idea that when the president tweets that my wires were tapped and that Trump Tower was wiretapped, that that includes the scenario in which, you know, Carter Page's bank records were, you know, accessed in the course of a normally authorized investigation is just dumb. And, and I don't think 
Jim Comey or, or Mike Rogers was asked that question. And I don't think anything like that that turned up would vindicate a larger wiretapping so claim. So I completely agree that sort of that it in no way vindicates Trump's actual claims and nor was he trying to make that claim at the time, right? He was clearly making a very, very specific allegation at the time. The question is like, as the public ingests various information and we see the level of confusion that they have, frankly, we see the rather astounding level of con- confusion that members of the HIPSI appeared to have about forms of collection, inter- incidental versus targeted collection, all that stuff. It's more a question of should we be making this point, caveating it, sort of being careful because uh, you know, look, if if Paul Manafort in the period of time in which he was Donald Trump's campaign manager was subject to you know to monitoring. He probably spoke to Donald Trump. I mean, there's sort of there's it's more like uh, should we be thinking a little bit further down the road in terms of public discourse or understanding of these things? Can I make a friendly amendment to your question? Um, And throwing my lot in with you, Shane, at a political level, if we go with the take him seriously but not literally school of thought, what Trump is doing here is setting up this entire FBI investigation as spying on him and a smear. So it makes sense as a political frame, regardless of whether it's accurate or not. And we know he doesn't care if it's accurate or not. Well, to that point, and this is where I, what I was alluding to when I said got no love in return, <clears throat> when Comey and Rogers sort of gently tweeted the, they treated the question of the tweets and said, well, we have no information that can confirm that, the White House Twitter account, which is not necessarily run by the president, but we can you know, imagine that he's aware of what's at least on it, um, was tweeting during the hearing. And at one point tweeted, FBI Director Comey refuses to deny he briefed President Obama on calls made to Michael, Michael Flynn, made by Michael Flynn to Russia. So Comey had been asked this question of, did you ever brief President Obama on this by a Republican? He said, I'm not going to talk about what I may or may not have said to President Obama, which is understandable. And the White House sort of to the Twitter account points at him and says, aha, see, he refuses to deny that he did it. They were manipulating Comey's words in real time via social media. At one point, a Democratic member actually started reading the tweets back to Comey to get him to refute them. I mean, to your point, Jonathan, this this is exactly what this feels like, is using all of the different tools and techniques that the president favors to make this about the FBI possibly being out to get him. But there's, right. but there, but, but there's another side to that, which actually Susan raised with me yesterday, which was, did Comey make himself unfireable yesterday? Basically, what Comey did was that he announced that he has the president and the cabal around him under investigation. And that makes him uh, a very difficult figure to remove from office without provoking a major scandal. I would just point out when J. Edgar Hoover did that, we thought it was a bad thing. Yeah, well, of course, Hoover never did it in public in an open hearing with, you know, political accountability. He kind of tended to do it more in the private meeting where you threaten somebody. True, but no president before Trump ever publicly requested that an adversarial foreign power spy illegally on his political opponent and then make that public. So you think that, so you think that Comey, uh, that, 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 Trump simply, if he decides to remove Comey, just won't care what the political optics of it are. 
Well, I think he'll think he can manipulate the political optics so that he can frame Comey as the guy who was surreptitiously spying on him and out to get him. And Trump is a master at that game. And anyone who thinks they can beat him at it had better think really hard. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our second topic. So uh, Adam Schiff, big fan of the bunny, uh, also happens to be the ranking member on the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, so it was uh, a big day for him. I think it's fair to call Schiff probably at this point the leading, I mean, the sort of the face and, you know, leading light of that, I don't want to say the Democratic opposition, but the the inquiry into the Russia hacks, uh, is certainly he's been leading them. Um, he was here at Brookings today uh, with Susan and Ben, uh, ably moderating a discussion with him after he gave a long address uh, where he talked, I mean, really expansively about Russian interference with uh, liberal democracy. Uh, he talked about as well about the investigation. One of the things that actually struck me about this was that I found myself kind of, I have to say, nodding my head was, um, and maybe this is because civics was my favorite class in all of high school, uh, making a plea for basically educating American children so they become more informed citizens so that they're not susceptible to the kinds of active measures and techniques that the Russian government used uh, or that the intelligence community believes they used in the election. Um, I don't know if that's going to fall on deaf ears. Uh, ben, you called it a very part of a very ambitious legislative and, you know, sort of political agenda to which Schiff said, you know, yeah, but it really shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. So I actually thought that was an interesting exchange. And I and I admired him for pushing back on me about that, frankly. He, you know, I looked at this uh, 10-part or 12-part agenda that he laid out. And I said, gosh, you know, that's a that would be a lot of legislation to get that through a, a very divided uh, Congress. And he responded, wait a minute, every single one of these was an element of bipartisan policy as recently as a couple years ago. I'm not talking about any fundamental change. I'm talking about, you know, you know, preventing a long-standing brick wall from being shattered to use you know Trump's Trump's favorite wall metaphor and I I actually think there's a lot of truth to that and the, you know the agenda is at one level ambitious but at another level it's purely defensive yeah, so like I, I thought Schiff's speech was pretty remarkable. Actually, I found it sort of moving. This like you know very sort of high-minded call to just a defense of liberal democracy in general, <laughs> um, including sort of this notion of needing to be more aware of civics and sort of and shared values. I think that was that was sort of the core point of uh, of his sort of pushback to to your uh, comment about sort of it being ambitious, which is that these used to be things that we didn't disagree about, right. um, and that we have sort of moved the, the Overton window here, or somehow we have gotten into an area of political discourse in which like, we don't agree on the things that we always thought that we'd agreed on. And I thought that was an interesting point to make in the context of the being the day after the hearing, um, uh, discussing pretty explicitly this investigation, because I thought that some of the subtext, although also not the subtext, I mean, I think he sort of came out and, and said it as much, that you wouldn't think that Republicans uh, uh, and Democrats could not agree on the notion of needing to get to the bottom of 
Russian interference in in, uh, our elections or Russian interference in elections around the world or sort of this assault on liberal democracy that we're seeing all over. Um, And so I I just thought that was sort of a, a remarkable statement on on not just where we are, but how quickly we have gotten here. I also think there's another interesting element of Schiff's speech today, which is the question of, you know, he's clearly trying to zoom out from the investigation. Uh, you know, there's an investigation that's looking at some some very specific questions, but they also implicate some broad foreign policy themes that he was clearly trying to talk about today. And they implicate some bigger national political themes uh, like, uh, you know, the degree to which our politics are divided and what, you know, where the Republican Party is going. And I'm interested in all of your thoughts about what it says about how Schiff is positioning himself. I'd actually now I want to kick this actually to Jonathan because, I mean, you wrote this great piece last year, Jonathan, about <clears throat> sort of the how we arrived at this moment as largely a, you know, a failure of the old backdoor dealings and skid greasing and the things that we sort of rejected from the system that actually tended to be the things that, you know, kept people in check and actually, you know, made the system perhaps not as equitable as we'd like it to be from a democratic perspective, but it made the damn thing work. Uh, And that what happened with Trump was actually in large measure enabled by all those firewalls and those barriers being broken down. I mean, it seems to me like what Schiff is, you know, he's not calling for bringing that back, but he's certainly calling for people to, you know, re-engage with this idea of a co-equal branch of government and that the legislature shouldn't be this thing that calls people before the dais to yell gotcha or to embarrass the president, but should actually be there to put a check on the executive, um, which, I mean, I think we we take, we sort of take that, we forget that, they, you know, they are a co-equal branch. And it seemed to me, you know, he was making a plea in a way for his fellow legislators to take this seriously uh, and to not just view this as, you know, a partisan opportunity to get your soundbite in and to stick up for the president or embarrass him. There was a lot of very sincere, very passionate argumentation in favor of a kind of bipartisanship, which is all but gone now at the very highest level of generality. Schiff is saying what a lot of people were saying, which is chaos doesn't work. Because in a chaotic environment where leadership is not really effective and parties can no longer exert control over who their nominees are, so parties get taken over hostily by Donald Trump. In that kind of environment, all you have is atomization, fracture, chaos, and partisanship. You've got tribalism, which is pretty much all people cling to. He's not happy in that world. No one's happy in that world. So at the highest level, that's what he's complaining about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that the thing that is that's remarkable about sort of people like Schiff is whether or not he's going to be able to find people who are similar enough to him on the other side of the aisle, right? So we know that sort of the partisan hacks and the ideologues are always going to sort of be pushed to their polls. Question is whether there, whether or not um, there can be a meaningful reconstruction effort that can sort of come from the middle, um, not even necessarily like the ideological middle, but just sort of those that core group of people who seem like they share some basic pre-political commitments and 
also are sort of interested in rebuilding things in the first place. Well, he was optimistic about that. I came into Ben's office afterwards and said, so was he on the level? Was that real optimism or is that wishful optimism? And we don't, we don't really know. But Schiff seemed to think Republicans want some stuff from this president and then they'll get some stuff from this president. But at the end of the day, when push really comes to shove, they'll finally do what Senate Republicans finally did to Nixon. We forget it took until the summer of 1974 long after it was clear that Nixon had done some really evil shit before Senate Republicans finally decided to stop protecting him. But at the end, they finally did. So maybe that's how this plays. Yeah, so look, I I agree it was sort of optimistic, but it was also a a little bit of like an indictment of his colleagues across the aisle, right? He was saying, oh, you know... They are, you know, completely craven political actors, and they won't do anything until their own sort of seats and agendas are are on the line here. And then once they've sort of squeezed everything they can out of this administration, you know, uh, what 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 wreckage he he can sort of create in the meantime be damned, then they'll decide to act. So I agree it was sort of it was optimistic in the sense of maybe they'll finally will get their act together. But I thought that there was like a, a little bit of edge to that as well. Right. In the, terms op- of- the optimism was based in a very deep cynicism about the motives of some of his colleagues. Well, and he also said, and I think this is well, two thoughts on this. One, he said, I would like to think that we can get to the finish line on this investigation and produce a report that both sides could support. That is, you know, a, a consensus document that would come out of the House Intelligence Committee's investigation. But he said... I would really feel better if as a backup plan, there were an independent commission like the 9-11 commission that were there. So he clearly recognizes this as a possibility. I would also just say as as a a sub point to that, I think you're likely to see something closer to bipartisanship in the Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation, which is actually a little bit further along behind the scenes where a number of prominent Republicans – on that panel have come out and said they have serious concerns about the Russian interference right. and are going to focus on it's it. It's true. Although I, I also think one of the striking things about the hearing yesterday was the degree to which, you know, Schiff is the ranking member, Nunez is the is the chairman. The agenda of that hearing was entirely Schiff's. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, Nunez and the Republicans wanted that hearing to be about leaks. It was that was not why very many people were watching the hearing. The reason people were watching that hearing was to hear what Democratic members were asking the uh, agency witnesses about the substance of Russia's involvement in the campaign and with the Trump people. And that is entirely Schiff's agenda, not the majority's agenda. And so he may have made the conscious or subconscious calculation that he can actually work with the, you know, in a bipartisan fashion. They can say whatever they want, but they're calling the witnesses that he wants to hear from. And actually, the reason people care about this process is because of his interaction with those witnesses, not because of what the majority gets them to say about General Flynn and the leaks. And he added, let's wait and see if the Republicans will use their subpoena power, which was an interesting point. Right, right. Um, let's move on to our, our final topic. Uh, there was a terrific piece uh, today, Tuesday, in the New York Times by Glenn Thrush and Maggie Haberman. Um, the fact that they wrote a terrific piece is not a surprise. But what is so interesting about this um, 
It quotes, well, not directly, but well, a couple directly, I guess, uh, many associates and allies and aides to Donald Trump, essentially saying, we've had it with the Twitter. Enough with the Twitter, enough with the tweeting. You're only doing damage to yourself, particularly on the Russia questions, particularly with your Enchi tweets. Uh, to coin Ben's Ooh, yeah, excellent. Yeah, uh, about we got to make that catch on. By, by the way, everybody, use hashtag hashtag ENSH. It stands for Errant National Security Horseshit, and it's it's our word, the rat official rational security word for the way the Trump administration interacts on on factual matters. Uh, related to national security. So please. Is horseshit one word or two? Horseshit is one, is word. one word. And ENCH is one acronym. And you all should start using it um, uh, and always use the hashtag when you do. So the piece basically quotes, you know, it assesses that many people close to Trump who it seems would like to be able to defend him on much of the Russia stuff uh, feel like he may be his own worst enemy. Uh, and what I just found fascinating about this was this idea, which I think is absolutely borne out by Trump's entire biography, that he believes, and perhaps in some instances not without reason, that he is the most effective crisis control manager. Uh, he is the person who should be have the reins uh, on his own uh, problems as the master of his own destiny. Uh, what really raises the question now, though, where he clearly cannot control the narrative of his administration, that is very obviously not in hand right now, um, is whether he is actually his own worst enemy or his best defender in all of this. I mean, I think there's a notion that he's sort of the master at shaping the narrative. Like, it's at this point, it seems more pathological than anything, right? I mean, he, you know, the mere fact of sort of putting the wiretapping stuff out there was just, it's incredibly strange in terms of a, a sort of strategic matter. Well, it feels it like did he changed the subject at it a did. critical moment. But he also feels, like, it seems like he feels like he knows you overplayed it a little bit. Yeah, I, I just... I, and that's also in the story is one thing that people point to is a moment where many people started to back away and have really serious concerns. Right. And and look, it, um, I'm not sure that, that Comey would have uh, confirmed publicly that there was an investigation, but for the pressure around those tweets. Yeah, I mean, right. That's like, right. There's, there's, this is a complex ecosystem here. And so he might think that he's, he's shifting the narrative, but he doesn't have control over all the actors and how the way, the ways in which that stuff is perceived. I, I thought one of the best um, sort of quotes in the piece was Sean Spicer insisting that he didn't have a problem with his, with the tweeting. I'm um, saying it's not true. I have not commented on the tweet to anyone, including my wife, he said in an email. One, Sean Spicer, like, you need to get a more supportive relationship because <laughs> if you cannot even talk to your wife about your boss just ruining your life every single day, then I, I, I just – I. You may need to sit marriage counseling. Someone. Marriage counseling. Okay, it can work. Um, more to the point, you know, the the notion that uh, you have Sean Spicer saying, "Oh, you know, I I haven't commented on the tweets at all. I have no opinion on the tweets." Dude, you're the White House press secretary. You are the person who is responsible for White House communications. I think and he's you also haven't, the communications director. Right? It was until recently. And you haven't even you, you haven't commented to anyone about the primary mechanism yeah. in which the president of the United States communicates it's with the American believable. people. Right? It's sort of it's just this it's this bizarre and baffling sort of insistence on on saying things that just plainly cannot be true well let me ask this because because jonathan you know you pointed out like look he changed the subject and i and i 
I have come to believe that whether Donald Trump is sort of in a, in a really calculated fashion thinking now is the moment when I'm going to change the subject, I think he instinctively knows when to do it. And he also, of course, you know, the Roy Cohn philosophy, hit back harder when you're under attack. But the, the polling data that's come out around this suggests that even among his supporters, people are tired of the tweeting, which would suggest to me that it's actually now become counterproductive. And the question, I guess, then is, you know, I mean, A, do we believe that it's kind of productive or should he just keep playing to the base of people that seem to love the fact that he's defiant on Twitter? Or is there a point where he says, God, you know what, this this just isn't working for me. It's time to put the mic down and step away. But the notion that he's capable of that, I mean, if there's well, strategic or not, throughout the campaign, we saw again and again that he was able, after sort of some catastrophic missteps, to step back for very, very limited periods of time before wading into it again. I don't know that he can actually control himself. He doesn't so seem to realize that it's actually doing damage to himself and his policies. I mean, the executive order, the fact that maybe Comey wouldn't have said anything unless but for the tweeting. So it's these are self-inflicted wounds but maybe he just so doesn't one see of the, that. One of the problems is that we don't actually know what the denominator in this expression is. So we all have the sense that that Trump can't resist sending out a tweet. But we have no idea how often he does. So is there are there actually tens of thousands of tweets that he almost sends... Oh, you mean like but, he thinks better and hits delete? Right. If I were ever going to defend Benjamin Witness on a murder investigation, and let's face it, the day might come, um, I'm going to offer the defense of that he has wanted to shoot 150 people. And the fact that he only shot the 151st person is a testament to his overwhelming okay. restraint just, and civic just virtue. Just if you will. And yet if you're talking about the actual restraint Donald Trump is or isn't showing... It is important, I think, to know whether he's giving vent to 100% of the tweets that he might want to send or whether he's giving vent to 2% of the tweets. All we know is the numerator of the expression. And I think the, you know, the fact that we don't actually know how many tweets he's not sending is actually makes it very hard to say, is he capable of showing this kind of restraint or is this a pathological disorder that he is actually not capable of not saying what he thinks, not expressing what he feels? And by the way, that that's entirely divorced from any factual assessment of whether what he feels may be related to the truth or not. I kind of like the theory. Do you remember the famous Saturday Night Live sketch oh, in, yes. which, in which Reagan acts like a dummy in public, but the minute the doors to the Oval Office close... The maps come down. He's trading commodities on the phone. He's debating the <laughs> Japanese finance minister about the yen. Then the Japanese, Girl Scout yeah. comes in and he hides everything and looks stupid. And says, this so is the I part of the job I hate. that Trump has a secret staff of people who are carefully crafting those tweets and actually rejecting his tweets to make them sound even more outrageous and stupid. No, Mr. Trump, this sounds too sane. So that's what's really going on here. But But seriously... There is a possibility that he's got something that we're missing, which is that this works for him. And it's worked for him not just getting him to be president, yeah. but for 30 years. And my authority on that is Donald Trump, in the words of The Art of the Deal, which 
I was just rereading today, thanks to a link in David Leonhardt's this, That's one of the most scariest, scariest use of the, of, of the prefix re I have heard in a long time. <laughs> um, Trump talks about his media philosophy, how important it is to dominate the media, how important it is to change the subject. Whatever they come at you with, you talk about what you want to talk about, how publicity, however bad, is always better than no publicity. Um, how he doesn't even particularly like to do this, but he's learned to be very good at it. This is a man with terrific self-confidence in his instincts, and he has won on this philosophy for 30 years. And he might continue winning on this philosophy while we here in Washington talk about how stupid he's being. I, I think I think you're I think you're really onto it here. And he says something. There's a quote actually in the the Thrush and Haberman piece where he talks about Twitter and this conduit of getting around the media and allowing them to dominate the conversation. Where he says, "I'm not sure I'd be where I am today without Twitter." And and, and he said that exactly, almost exactly in those words to Tucker Carlson. Right. This right. Week. I was sorry. It was to Tucker Carlson. I apologize. But I, I <clears throat> I'm with Jonathan on this too. Where and I think that there's this this dominating the media, using the media. Um, there's a great show on FX now called Feud, which is about the feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And a huge part of the narrative is about the relationship that Joan Crawford has with Hedda Hopper, the gossip columnist, and how everything is a negotiation. I will give you information. We will negotiate over the story. But the media has an agenda. So can I. And we can live together with this and, and benefit each other. It's that kind of page six interaction. That's the media he's used to dealing with in the New York press. And I think he did absolutely master them in kind of the, the television magazine format. Now what he's running up against is a Washington press corps that he can't dominate, but also is looking at him through entirely the wrong lens. We keep trying to fit him into this frame of a typical president when you should be dealing with him as basically a guy who appeared on celebrity gossip pages for most of his life. Right. That's how he views the media. We see what looks like sociopathic lying behavior, completely <laughs> unsuited to the presidency, making wild-eyed accusations that will only undercut his agenda. He sees direct communication with the base, which will see this entire investigation as a plot to get him. Okay, so I totally accept that. But I also uh, assert that the constraints on the presidency are different from the constraints on a real estate magnate in New York. Yes. Um, and that this is a guy who has to get 218 votes in the House this week to pass a health care bill. Uh, and after he's done with that, he's got, and to get those 218 votes, he's got to do some things that's going to make it very hard to get the uh, Republican votes. Uh, to pass the same bill in the Senate. Uh, and he's got to have sustained relationships of uh, confidence with legislators over a four-year term in office. And the question is whether this domination strategy vis-a-vis -vis the media is or is not a, 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 a workable uh, adaptive strategy toward the kind of activities you need as president in order to be functional. And, you know, color me skeptical about that. The other thing is that he clearly has such a selective consumption of media, right? So you hear reports about staff sort of printing out the favorable articles. Because he's not he reading Susan, I suspect. You know, Susan's Twitter feed 
I don't think I don't he's... know. He certainly doesn't follow me, but I don't follow him either. So we're even. <laughs> um, right. But but the notion that you can dominate something that you actually don't understand the full landscape of, I I just don't think the guy's that smart. Yeah, I think it's a strategy that's great for politics and campaigning and bad for governing and bad for persuasion of people who you need in this town to get your agenda done. Um, all right, let's move on to object lessons. I'll go first. So I even, I even brought it in today. So my object is is the new book, Portraits of Courage, by former President George W. Bush. Um, so most people found out actually that George W. Bush uh, in his post-presidency enjoys painting because uh, a relative's email was hacked and some of his paintings uh, that he'd been working on were revealed. Um, and I have to say, I thought that the initial paintings that we saw were pretty naive. I mean, they're pretty simplistic. Um, this book, though, is, is different. Uh, so this is a collection of portraits uh, and they are portraits, many of them just entirely of the face of people who were either injured uh, or died uh, in the military, military service um, uh, on George W. Bush's orders. Uh, it's a pretty profoundly moving book, uh, just in the way that it's arranged in terms of the portraits and then quotes from the individuals. It's pretty spare in many respects. The thing that, though, that has me absolutely fascinated by is, and I should say, too, the painting seems like it has improved pretty demonstrably. Uh, actually, you know, my husband is a painter and he looked at this and actually was pretty impressed by some of it and, you know, pointed out that there are these focuses that Bush has on the eyes and the cheekbones and things he seems to be zeroing in on. What really got me about this is that uh, George W. Bush, I would not use the words eloquent to describe him. He is a man who had uh, a lot of struggles with the English language and was not always able to get himself across clearly. This is work that is clearly the work of somebody who is thinking very deeply. This is expressive stuff. And it's just fascinating to me that this may be actually like the clearest window into George W. Bush's soul or his thinking that we've maybe ever seen. This it's uh, this doesn't come from a shallow place. This so, comes from somewhere very deep and very thoughtful. I want to say two things about George W. Bush. The first is that uh, I first learned – that George W. Bush was not shallow and not an idiot. Uh, when Bob Woodward released the tapes of his interviews with George W. Bush uh, that he uh, used for Bush at War, uh, which was you know a book that he a set of books I guess that he he wrote about the Bush administration and Bush is in those books in those interviews thoughtful and articulate and uh, speaks in full sentences and has none of these sort of weirdly aphasic qualities that we associate with George W. Bush. The second thing that I really just feel like everything you've just said is a validation of that I've really been thinking about a lot recently is that whatever one's policy differences from George of George W. Bush, and I certainly have a lot of them, and some of them implicate some pretty basic rule of law values. This was a person of, and is a person of enormous personal decency and uh, who colored within the lines of modern democratic politics on a very consistent basis. And I think we uh, uh, it says a lot about him that he's thinking about the people who were injured uh, and killed. Uh, as a result of orders that he gave. And it 
uh, says a lot about the difference between him and the man who is currently in the office that he held, that it is unimaginable that Donald Trump would spend time painting pictures of people who were killed as a result of orders that he gave. And, and I just think it's worth spending some time meditating on the differences there. No, I I had seen an advanced copy and I had the same thought of sort of, especially in the contrast with President Trump, sort of seeing um, like the the uh, appreciation of the gravity of the role of the presidents and sort of like the uh, just a real ownership of, of personal responsibility and accountability sort of for your decisions. And um, I was really struck by that. Um, uh, it also sort of called to mind uh, the passages from Ronald Reagan's diaries um, where he talks about uh, receiving Bomb Abrams's body, a CIA operative who had been killed abroad and um, like basically crying so hard he couldn't speak. Um, and so like there are these little glimpses, I think, in, in you know, most modern presidents where you really do get uh, uh, sort of a moment of understanding just the tremendous weight that that they carry and then sort of how uh, uh, just heavy that must be and, and that they really do appreciate uh, uh, these the gravity of their role and the absence of seeing that in the current president I think is one of the things that is the most sort of deeply disquieting in a way that you just you can't shake you can't comfort yourself on responsible cabinet secretaries it's just sort of it's it's there ben what's your object my object is a uh small disc um i think it's a coaster i could be a a large command coin it's metal and it is uh identified with the united states court of appeals of the 10th circuit and it was sent to me uh, by way of uh, a, 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 a small thank you by uh, one Neil Gorsuch, um, whom Jonathan and I uh, were privileged to spend a week in Israel with uh, at the end of last year on a program that that uh, I I spent some time, uh, you know, helping helping out a program called Academic Exchange. Uh, and uh, by quite coincidence, obviously having no idea that he was about to be named to the Supreme Court, uh, my colleagues and I invited Judge Gorsuch uh, on this uh, 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 academic trip. Uh, and uh, in following which, he uh, sent me a, a – I guess it's a, it's a Tenth Circuit coaster um, or maybe command coin. I'm not sure. Um and uh, I mention it because, uh, you know, today he is answering questions before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I just want to emphasize how, how, what a sucker I am. <laughs> because once somebody has sent me a, a coaster, I am putty in their hands. And I am, you're never going to hear a word of criticism of me, from me, of, of Judge Gorsuch, uh, because, you know, my coffee is sitting on a Tenth Circuit coaster that he, he sent bought me. Price of a Senate and confirmation. With a cheap and if I were a senator, he'd have my vote. <laughs> now, all jokes aside, uh, he is a, uh, a genuinely lovely individual. And, um, and I, I uh, wish him all the best uh, in the confirmation process and uh, on the court. All right. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti in the Wall Productions. You can find links to our show archive at our webpage. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download us on uh, any of your favorite podcatchers, you know the drill. Five-star review. Send us a Tenth Circuit coaster. 
not as great as a five-star review, I'm just going to say. No, no. If Neil Gorsuch could go on right now and leave a five-star review, yeah, no, th- that would you could that, send the coaster back. Th- that you know, would I think end under the, the Constitution, you actually don't have to be confirmed. You, if you leave a five-star review or with you know or with, with consent of the Senate, yeah, exactly. it's just that's it's that's fine. The rules you can work. totally do it. So we really highly encourage you to do so. Uh, our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. Our show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Adam Schiff and the Brookings Krolik. Krolik is that the bunny and. That's Russian for <laughs> rabbit or bunny. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> like that? Slide Excellent. that in there. Just mm. hop right over. I <laughs> love it. Yeah, I like it too. No, of course, her music is performed as always by Sophia Yan, who has a terrible, little known fear of rabbits. Huh. She does. Does she? Yeah. And she's huh. cowering in <laughs> That was total ench what we just did. <laughs> On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy, and our good friend, Jonathan Rausch, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.